Again, let me say good morning. I'm so glad to be back with you. I want us to think about, think really long and hard about how much of our lives are controlled by these four words. Think about how many of our decisions, how much of our life, big things, small things, petty things, not so petty things. How much of your life and how much of my life is controlled by these four words? And the four words are, what will people think? What will people think? What will people think? It, 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 a lot of decisions are made based around those things. The opinions of others, for some, holds a massive grip on people. It could be little things. It could be big things. The kind of clothes we wear, what we, what we pick out to wear, so often is based on what will people think, right? The way we parent. I, you know, my, my poor kids, I remember them asking me some winter morning. It was really cold outside. I'm dropping them off at school, and they've got to walk all of, like, 20 yards you know, to get into a warm building, right, where they'll be all day. And they're looking at me in these huge coat going, why do we have to wear this coat? Why, this makes no sense. And I'm like, it's not for you. It's because mommy and daddy don't want to be judged for being bad parents. You're, where, you're paying the price for our WWPT issues. That's what will people think. Now, some of you immediately, your mind immediately, you're like, dude, this talking right at me. Thank you. Yes, I have, an, I, I have this fear. I, I have approval addiction. I worry so much about the approval of others. And Pastor Thomas talking right at me. There are others of you. Uh, 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 and think about it. What will people think can affect the way you share the gospel boldly or maybe shy away from sharing the gospel? Why? What will people think? So like I said, there are some of you like, yes, that's me. I worry what people think. I have an inordinate, I have, I have too great a fear of the opinions of others. Others of you. There are people who, who, who try to then solve that, but they use the world's method of solving that. And the world's method of solving that is basically, don't worry about what people think. Haters gonna hate. They, you, you know, don't listen to them. They're, they're beneath you. Why are you gonna let the opinions of others? And there are some of you who are like, I don't care at all what people think. You speak your mind. You don't care what anybody thinks. And you honestly look like you really enjoy that. Uh, now, to those of you, if you're there, I want to say, um, you know, so see, this, this message is for not me. I don't care what anybody thinks. I would say, uh, hold on. For those of you who are on the other end of the spectrum, you're like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Their opinion is beneath me. I'd be like, well, while sometimes I envy that, can you see how, can you see how that's pride? That's not better. To say it doesn't matter. I don't care about the opinions of others. Why? Because they're beneath me. You hear how that's pride, right? So we don't want to live lives of pride where the opinions of others don't matter at all. We don't care what anybody thinks because we're too proud. But we certainly don't want to be, you know, driven by the opinions of others. So how, what is the key? How do you live a life that avoids both those two errors? You got to figure out how to do what David did in 2 Samuel 6. The key to avoiding both those errors is to figure out how to live, and here's the phrase, you're gonna see it over and over in today's text, how to live before the Lord. A life lived before the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter six. 
This is a really tough passage for modern people to get their heads around. I think you'll see why pretty soon. But it contains within it some of the most important gospel principles in the Bible. So I can't wait for us to unlock what is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me say a word to those of you who are joining us. If you're just joining, if you're watching this online, if you're listening to this podcast while you're jogging, Keep going. Pick up the pace. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something encouraging. If you, right? But to those of you who have not been with us, we've been in a series on First and Second Samuel for four years. And now we're at this point in 2 Samuel 6. David is king. He is, he's the newly installed King David. He's got his new capital, Jerusalem. And this is the story of moving the Ark of the Covenant from where it's been into the holy city of Jerusalem. David's kingdom is gonna be known as a kingdom with God at the center. It's not gonna be so much about David as king, but as Yahweh as king. So he's gotta get the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the symbolic presence of God, into his new capital city, Jerusalem, which a couple weeks ago was a stronghold, but God did something, and now it's no longer property of the Jebusites. belongs, it's David's city. So here we go, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David, it's it's a big event, so it has a big turnout. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, now what is the ark and where has it been? Uh, Let's review. The ark is basically a golden box, a few feet wide, few feet high. Not to, if you're new to the Bible, you might confuse this with Noah's ark. That's totally different. That was a, a huge boat. Uh, this is a box. You can read all about it in Exodus 25. God told Moses to build it. It's overlaid with gold and on top the two cherubim, that word means angels. So it's these images of these two angels uh, on top there. Uh, God said that he would bless the people symbolically with his presence at the ark. It symbolized the rulership of God, the reconciliation of God, and the revelation of God. What do I mean? First Chronicles says, imagines God as king in all the heavens. It says the ark is his footstool, the little footstool under the king's throne. So the ark, when you look at it, is meant to remind you of the rulership of God. Moreover, it is the reconciliation of God. Why do I say that? Because the ark, on the ark was what was called the mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest would go in on the day of atonement, sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, and it was a reminder to the people, God has accepted the sacrifice, and your sins are atoned and covered for another year. So it was a, it was a symbol of reconciliation between a holy God and his people. And revelation, remember what was in the box. God told Moses to take the stone tablets, put them in the box. He's got the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. So the ark represents the revelation of God's people. Now, all, side note, all of that, by the way, the rulership of God, the reconciliation of God, and the revelation of God, all that the ark represents, every bit of it, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, what happened? When he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was ripped top to bottom access to the ark. Why? The ark became obsolete because Jesus Christ fulfilled all that the ark symbolized. That's important because if you come from a denomination or a tradition where there's all these sacred objects and sacred shrines and sacred things, you think, why don't we have that as Protestants? We've got a pulpit for God's word. We've got a uh, a table, a simple table with the elements uh, for communion, which we're going to take the Lord's Supper next Sunday, by the way. We'll have some, some uh, a juice and some bread, very simple table. And we have, you saw, the waters of baptism. We have a baptismal pool. But that's it. I mean, where's all the fancy stuff? Where's all the sacred stuff? Because we believe the Bible teaches 
uh, the, the, the ark and, 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 and these sacred objects fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? Back to the text. The, uh, <clears throat> back to the action. You, you might say any Bible reader who's been halfway paying attention might get to chapter 6, verse 3 and go, uh-oh. This doesn't feel right. What they're doing doesn't, eh. maybe you can't put your finger on why, but look at verse three. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. You remember, um, how did it get to Abinadab? Remember the Philistines years ago, way back in 1 Samuel 4, they captured the ark, they brought it to Philistia, and they suddenly realized the ark was too hot to handle. They had to get rid of it, so they put it on an ox cart, by the way, and shipped it off to the house of Abinadab where it's been. And David is like, hey, new capital. I'm ready to get the ark and bring it in. Um, but you'll notice uh, it's at Abinadab's. They put it on a new cart. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Yeah, so, so there's like multiple places in the Old Testament, multiple places in the law. It wasn't buried in the fine print. There's multiple places where the people were given instructions on how to deal with the ark, especially when you have to move it, when you have to transport it. And of all the commands, they're breaking like all of them. You're not supposed to look at it. It's supposed to be covered. Here it is, uncovered. Throw it on an ox cart. Uh, you're supposed to, by the way, only a certain branch of the Levites are supposed to carry it, and they had rings in the ark, and you slide a pole through the rings, and it's meant to be carried by hand by these Levites because you're not supposed to look at it. You're not supposed to touch it. And here they are putting it on an ox cart. Notice in the verse twice, not once, but twice they mentioned, but it was a new cart, <laughs> almost like they're trying to like, yeah, but I mean, you know, it's not like we put it on an old used cart. Like, don't we get credit for that? Like, so... I don't know what they were thinking, but they're using the Philistine method of transporting it. Um, and also notice what's missing here. Over and over in First and Second Samuel, we see David always inquiring of the Lord. He would inquire of the Lord. Am I supposed to do this? He would inquire of the Lord. Am I supposed to do this? Here, there's no inquiring of the Lord. Didn't consult with God. So the reader almost expects trouble, but we're still not prepared for what happens. Verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So far, so good. It's a raucous celebration. By the way, I think, I think this is the context for Psalm 24. If you remember Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, the one with clean hands, it says, Think about it. You got the ark, the presence of God, coming into Jerusalem. Psalm 24 is the, is the lift, up you, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. You can imagine that song like you're telling the ancient city of Jerusalem. Hey, doors, wake up. Ancient gates, lift up that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. Hosanna, Hosanna. Everybody's coming in and they're celebrating and they're singing because the ark is returning to this great ancient city. And everything's going great until, verse six, the fateful oxen stumble. <laughs> and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Everybody got the scene? So the ark is about to fall into the dirt and mud when an oxen stumbles, and Uzzah does what I think any of us would do. He instinctively reaches out and grabs the Ark of the Covenant, presumably to steady it. It's instinctive. 
You do that. When you're driving and you slam on the brakes, what do you do? Right? Because you did that when your kids were four. It doesn't matter that they're 50. You still do it. Right? It's instinctive. If we had been there that day, we would have said, good save. Way to go, Uzzah. You're going to be on ESPN tonight. That was like a great catch, right? You prevented the ark from falling. We would have celebrated it. But that is not, apparently, the correct reaction. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. What? With all the celebration and all the loud instruments, maybe it took a moment for everybody to realize it, but something strange happened. The dancing stopped, the music stopped, and all eyes turned to Uzzah on the ground, lying perfectly still. Somebody called 911. The party was over. I, I don't care what religious tradition you are from. When someone drops dead in the worship service, the worship service is over. Now, I, I'm, if you're honest... You know, I, I suppose if you want to give the Sunday school answer, you could just move on to the next verse. But I'm sorry. If you're honest, isn't this one of those times when you read the Bible and it upsets you? You go, what is going on here? As a modern reader, doesn't this sort of upset you? After all, Uzzah was only trying to help. He did what any of us would have done. What was he supposed to do? Allow the oxen to just bounce the Ark of the Covenant right off the cart don't you want to say god why couldn't you cut him some slack i mean why so severe and it seems so arbitrary what's great what's great about uh, verse eight is that we think we're so modern and we look back at these people three thousand years ago and we go well i guess they just accepted this but we modern people we can't accept that what's going on we get angry i guess back then they were cool about it no they got angry too look at david in verse eight david has the exact same reaction a modern reader does and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. That word just means broken. It's called the, the breaking out against Uzzah place. David was outraged. You can imagine David saying what we would have said. What gives, God? This guy was just trying to do you a favor, Lord. Now, one more quick side note. Stuff like this in the Bible, I believe God is the author of the Bible. I don't believe humans just made it up. I believe God is the author. <clears throat> it's stuff like this in the Bible that doesn't make me believe that less. It actually makes me believe it more. Let me explain what I mean. S difficult stuff like this in the Bible actually gives me more evidence that this only God could be the originator of this. And it's supernatural in its origin and it's trustworthy in its content. It proves to me that God wrote this and not a human. Why? Because it goes against the grain of human preference. I know God wrote it because what human would put this in here? Does that make sense? To a skeptic who would say, and there are skeptics who would say, well, you know, the, you know what the Bible is, right? So you got all these religious people who want a particular God and they want everybody to believe in this God. So, so this Judeo-Christian tradition, this is like a projection of wish fulfillment. Because they want a God, they project it onto that and that's what you have in the Bible. To which when you read this, you go, well, any, any skeptic who raises that objection that this is just a wish fulfillment of what humans want in a Bible have never, in fact, obviously read a Bible. Who would put this in here? Who, who of us would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, this God is not very marketable. You see what I'm saying? End of side note, back to the text. We're still left with the question, 
what's going on here? What can we say about this? And I think the first thing that needs to be said, and this could be your first application point, I'll give you three, but the first application point to me is very clear. However high you view God's holiness, it's higher. That God's holiness is even higher than we can imagine. To, to be holy means to be set apart. You might say a cut above. God is not like the greatest human you've ever met. God is not a human. Now, so many things could be said to our objections to a passage like this, but I wonder if our objections say more about us than God. For one thing, God doesn't have to answer our objections. We have to answer his. Uh, uh, he's not a creature. He's the creator. So the Bible uses sometimes an image where it's like, the potter making the clay into what he wants, the clay can never say to the potter, hey, why'd you make me like this? Mm. The potter makes the clay. The clay isn't determining his own fashioning. And to anybody who would say, yeah, but it seems so arbitrary. Eh, ah, His laws aren't anything but arbitrary. They're very well stated, and they're very clearly stated. You can look at Numbers 4, you can look at different places, but if you go home in your homework and look at Numbers 4, uh, in particular, the way the laws about how you transport the ark are stated, they're actually stated as a mercy. Let me explain what I mean. They say over and over again, listen, here's how you do it, lest they die. Don't look upon the ark, lest they die. Here, uh, uh, numbers four, do not touch or look upon the uncovered ark so that they may live and not die. His, his commandments are a mercy. It's as if God is saying, you've underestimated my holiness, so I'm going to give you some safeguards. I'm not giving you a list of rules because I'm going to arbitrarily zap you if you break the rules. I am so holy that for you, a sinner, to come in contact with my kind of holiness, you would be utterly destroyed like a consuming fire. You'd be burned up. So these rules are so that you can live. Now think about that for a second. Properly understood, God's, all his commands are like that. Sin has natural consequences, and God is trying to protect us. Properly understood, God's commands are actually his blessings, not his burdens. Let me say that again. Properly understood, God's commands are his blessings, not his burdens. And if you live under the command of God, Psalm 1 says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Whatever it does prospers. Your leaf doesn't, your leaf doesn't wither. His commands are his blessings. I, I, we do get focused on poor Uzzah. I mean, I think we zoom in when God wants us to zoom out on this text and ask, but what is God showing us? What is God doing? But for anybody who's, who's so, like, can't get the, the fact of Uzzah, I, I would just point out the text says nothing about his eternal state. It doesn't say he was cast into eternal hell. God's judgment is temporal. His eternal destiny is not at stake. I think God is showing us something. I think he, he wants, here we are 3,000 years later, and God is teaching us something in this event. Uzzah is a pattern for all of us who are sinners. One of the things about being a sinner is we underestimate our own sinfulness. We justify it, but we don't realize how sinful we are before holy God. Why did uh, God strike Uzzah down? What was his error? Car stumbles. He reaches out to stop it. Why? Because it was going to fall into the dust. It was going to fall into the dirt and the mud. So what does that mean? It means he sticks out his hand because he assumes his hand is somehow less sinful than the earth and the mud and the dirt. And he's wrong. You know why? The dirt never rebelled against the gracious rule of God. The dirt never blasphemed God in rebellion. The dirt never committed cosmic treason. The dirt 
dirt never disobeys God. It's got nutrients in it and you put stuff in it and it grows. Dirt's just glorifying God by being dirt. It's interesting, isn't it? That in Uzzah's mind, there's no way that dirt could be less dirty than him. But that's what sin does. It deceives us. And we assume somehow that we're not as sinful. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing, I, I, I guess religious Uzzah thinks, I gotta help God out a little bit. You know, I, I, I gotta add, I gotta contribute. Uh, I think Uzzah presumes upon the mercy of God. They've all seen God's mercy over and over again, so they just presume. And, and, and I think that's that first point, that's what God wants us to see in the first part of this narrative. God's holiness is even higher than we imagine. We've seen his mercy so much that sometimes we presume upon it. Here an illustration will help. I read a commentary where uh, a guy was telling a story about R.C. Sproul, who was a college professor. One of his first times as a college professor, Professor Sproul, he, he only gave three papers. That was his whole, his whole grade was based on these three papers he assigned. He assigned them throughout the semester. It's in the syllabus. The dates are clear. And he assigns the first paper, and he tells everybody, look, here's the deal. I don't know what kind of professors you've had in the past. I don't know. Everybody's got their own policy. Here's my thing. Here's the due date. If you do not turn in your paper by the due date for this first paper, if you do not turn it in by the due date, uh, I don't do like partial credit or makeup or anything, you get an F. Is everybody clear? Like it's either in on time or it's an F. And because it was his first time as a professor, he didn't realize that one quarter of his students failed to turn it in by the due date, right? And they all gave these excuses as to why and everybody had this excuse. And so he relented on his own policy and he showed mercy. And he's like, all right, all right. And so he, he extended the deadline, got everybody's paper turned in, and okay. And he was praised as this great professor. The second time around, uh, the same thing happened. For the second paper, here's the due date. And so the same thing happened. A quarter of the students didn't turn it in. And once again, they gave all these excuses. And once again, he showed mercy. But this time he said, look, I'm showing you mercy. You've got to get it in. I, you know, the next time, the final paper, I'm just going to give you an F. I'm not doing this again. The final paper came. You guessed it. A quarter of the students did not turn it in, and Sproul gave them all an F. The ones who didn't turn it in got an F. And you know what they said? That's not fair. But the irony is, if you think about it, you could say it's not cool, man. Uh, or your rate my professor's stars are going down, bro. Or you can say, I didn't like that. Or you can say it's not merciful. But the one thing you cannot say is that's not fair. In fact, the only time he was not fair was the first two times when he let it go, right? If anything, so what happens was because he'd been merciful and because he'd been merciful, you presume on his mercy only to find out there's justice. So like, like when we look at God, we've seen here, here, here they're looking at David and all God has done in, in King David's life and it's God's mercy and God's mercy and God's mercy. And so over time, you just sort of presume on God's mercy. And when God strikes Uzzah down for following the law, he literally said, if you touch the ark, you die. When he does it, we go, God, that's not fair. Because the problem's with us, not with him. And our whole life, he's been so merciful to us that if we're not careful, and if you're watching this online or you're here in this room and you don't yet know God as your Savior, if you are still far from God, you listen to me. This is the most important thing you could possibly hear. Because he's been merciful to you, merciful to you, merciful to you. You don't believe Hebrews, which says it's appointed for man once to die and face judgment. You don't believe it because he's been so merciful. I'm here to tell you, he's been merciful to give you time to repent. 
not because judgment is not coming. Don't presume upon the mercy of God. Consider his holiness. The jaw-dropping truth of 2 Samuel 6 is, is not, the, 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 main, the, the main question is not, why did God kill Uzzah? The main question is, why did God let everyone else live? He's holier than we can imagine. We've got to move on, but to anyone who would say, whew, heavy stuff. I'm glad we don't have a God like that anymore. I would say to you, oh, same God. Our band just led us in this song, same God. I will go home later this afternoon and Google Annas and Sapphira. You'll find them in Acts in the New Testament. I'll leave, I won't spoil it, but I'll leave you to do your homework and realize God is holier than we can imagine. Now, if you start to get all this, then you get chills. You move from anger to something else, afraid. You start to go, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, if judgment is coming, then, then who can stand before a holy God? That's exactly what happened to David. In chapter eight, he's angry. I'm sorry, in verse eight, he's angry. But look at verse nine. He moves from anger to fear. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This reminds us of way back in 1 Samuel 4 when the Philistines are like, all this judgment came on them because of the way they were, they were, they were dealing with the presence of God and it's too hot to handle. And then when they finally do get it to Abinadab, you remember, God strikes down 70 that day, 70 people. And finally it's like, well, they, they say, you can go back and look in 1 Samuel 6, who can stand before this holy God? David has this moment, I, I, I can't live without God and yet it seems I can't live with him. Now look, first, 2 Samuel 6 is a difficult passage for modern people to get their head around. But this right here, that right there, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Every human being in, instinctively, we need a connection with God. We know deep down God made us, but we got this big problem. How can a transcendent, holy God come in ta- contact with a sinful human being? How can the God who has no sin come in contact with us? We need the holiness of God, but it seems like it's almost too much so how can God come to us that question that David asks is the fundamental question of every human heart since the dawn of time and Christianity has the audacity to say they know the answer the gospel of Jesus Christ has the audacity to say to that fundamental question we have the answer of course David doesn't know it yet and so he just gives up and verse 10 it's a little sad but it's a little funny Verse 10 is meant to be, I think, the comic relief in this story. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. What's funny about that? Obed-Edom was a Gittite. That means he was a Philistine. Not an Israelite, he was part of the conquered Philistines. So you got the scene? The Ark of the Covenant has literally just zapped somebody, killed him dead. David's like, whoa, what are we gonna do with this? Why don't you give it to that Philistine? <laughs> so poor Obed-Edom is like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, man. Like, uh, <laughs> I, get I, like, I, 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 don't want, I don't want any part of this, but he's a conquered Philistine. This would be like putting a toxic waste dump in a neighborhood that was powerless to prevent it. And David, poor David's like, listen, if this is what God does to his chosen people, Israel, imagine what he's going to do to these pagan Gittites. Imagine what he's going to do to these Philistines. And David leaves. 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And you can imagine poor Obed-Edom and all his household. And David every day is waiting for a report like they're all dead, right? <laughs> they're all dead. I don't know. I think Obed-Edom probably, he probably uh, went to the beach. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm out. <laughs> well, you can put the ark in my garage, but I don't want to be anywhere near it. Uh, and yet he's there. And, um, and that's it. Except. Then the most astonishing thing happens. Can you imagine? For three months. I can see David tossing and turning this whole three months. He's over and over. He's asking this one question, verse 9, stuck in his head. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's been asking this, and it's bothering him, and he, oh, and all he knows is fear. And then the most astonishing things happen. Look at verse 11b. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, this is shocking for everybody. It's probably shocking for Obed-Edom. I mean, you imagine Obed-Edom's friends are coming over like, what's that box? Obed-Edom's like, I wouldn't touch it. Uh, (laughs) But y'all, it's the craziest thing. Ever since that box has been in my house, our family's like getting along. And we're all like loving each other. And every time we come home, it's just like this big family. Lo- and, and the crops, the, look at those watermelons. I know, I know. It's the size of a chariot. I, I know. And look at the chariot, right? Everything, it's got new wheels. Everything, like the, 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 the financially we're blessed. And the, the fruit, the fruit is so tasty. It's the craziest thing. As soon as, the, as, soon as it's here, everything is going along swimmingly. I can't believe it. And news reaches David, verse 12, and it was told King David, yet the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And David's like, wait, what? Yeah, the presence of the Lord brings much blessing to the household where it is honored. And you see what David is being taught. God deliberately prospers and blesses them, deliberately. These pagan foreigners, these people who, who, for all we know, aren't even believers in God at all, and God deliberately prospers them to get David to see, yes, my holiness is higher than you can imagine, but I'm also a God of grace. Put another way, he's saying, David, don't you dare think there's good people and bad people in the world, and these people are religious, and they're going to be okay, and these people aren't, and they're going to suffer. No, 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 no. Don't you dare think there are some races or cultures that are good and some that are bad or that just by virtue of their pedigree have a leg up on God and other people do not. He said, here's what this proves. You're all sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. But that also means anybody can be saved. Anybody. The Bible says, whosoever Whoever calls upon, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the gospel is the great leveler. You might say the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. We all sin, we all need grace. And so David now has a lot to think about. And I imagine he, hear, he hears word that under, with the ark of God, this person experiencing the blessing of God, it's starting to dawn on him. His holiness is higher than he can imagine, but his grace runs deeper. And I imagine David goes, and this time he goes and reads the Ark's instruction manual. He goes back to Numbers 4. I should have done this the first time, right? And figures out exactly how he's supposed to deal with it. He realizes it's by God's grace. He gets the second chance. So verse 12b, so David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, notice, now they get it right. Now there's none of that new cart business. 
Now, First Chronicles also tells this story. It adds a little detail. It tells us that he got uh, no new cart and he got the Levites to carry it, the ones who were supposed to be carrying it. Now they're rejoicing like Psalm 211 says, they're rejoice with trembling, a kind of holy, reverent fear. And that's the second point. Yes, God's holiness is even higher than we imagine, but God's grace runs even deeper than we can imagine. That right there, those two points, isn't that the gospel? The gospel is more. It's more. However sinful you think you are, I'm sorry to tell you, the gospel would say it's actually more. You're more sinful. But however deep you think God's grace runs, if you think it can go to the, to the lowest sin, if you think it can get into the darkest corners of your shame, I'm here to tell you this morning, it's actually even more. This morning, the choir sang in the 8 a.m. service this beautiful song. We've sung it in here before. Uh, My sins, they were many. His mercy is more. My sins, they were many. His mercy is more. The gospel is more. His holiness is more than we can imagine, and his grace runs deeper. Well, David must have done some reading uh, because he's got it. How can the Lord's presence come to me? It hits him. When these two things come together, the holiness of God, how can the holiness of God, and yet he's also a gracious God, look at verse 13, sacrifice makes a way. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, I love that. He's like, hey, we're we're not even starting this train, not even getting out of the gate on this parade before we sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal. What's his point? At the very outset, David is saying, so there's no mistaking what's happening here. This is all by God's grace. The way a holy God can meet with sinful people out of his grace is by an atoning sacrifice. David must have pieced it all together. Now let's put it all together. The the question that David had from verse nine, how can a holy God, how can the Lord come to me has now been answered only by atonement, only by his grace. So that's it. What do you do? Listen, if, if, if you're not yet a believer, you got to hear me clearly. Like, how can a holy God who we're going to stand before in judgment be gracious to us? And the answer is, for everyone who deserves the wrath of God poured out on sin, and, and, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. We, you know, we can make all the justification. We can make all the excuses. We can blame everybody else. None of that's going to hold up. And in that moment when we deserve the wrath of God, have you considered atonement has been made? Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, stretched out his arms on Calvary's cross. And for every sinner who deserved the wrath of God, if you will accept Jesus, that wrath, don't you see, has been diverted onto the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus. He died in your place and for your salvation. But for every Christian who's heard the old, old story, uh, that's another hymn actually we sang this morning. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. In other words, if you've heard the gospel good news, and some of you have been walking with the Lord a long time, you still hunger and thirst to hear that good story that God died in, in Jesus Christ. He died in your place and for your salvation out of love. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to heaven where he reigns forever and ever and invites you into the forever life with God. Christians love to hear that good news. When you get that, when that dawns on you that it's more, I'm more sinful than I ever wanted to imagine, but I'm loved to the stars. His grace is more. When those two things come together, what's all that's left? What's the response? At the risk of offending my 
now in heaven grandparents because I grew up Southern Baptist my whole life. The only appropriate response when that kind of gospel good news comes to a person, David, verse 14, is dancing. (laughs) And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, uh, uh, linen ephod may remind you that was some garments of the priest. But the point here is not not that he was trying to act like, though he was a a kingly priest. A linen ephod was a simple garment that could have been worn by anybody. In other words, he shed his kingly robes with all their splendor and just said, today's not about me being king. Today's about God being king and I'm just a worshiper. Just a regular worshiper enjoying the party, dancing before the Lord with all his might. Uh, so, like, I, you know, I, I don't know what you do with this other than to say in light of both God's holiness and his grace, if God's touched your life, if you're a Christian, if you know him, if he set you free, if you're not who you were, if he's delivered you, if he's made you healed, if you've been given a second chance, my third point would be second chance, time to dance. I mean, what else is there? It's a life of celebration. And David didn't care what people thought. Go back to the intro. It wasn't that he was under these opinions of others. He was dancing. He didn't care. If you need a good cry, go home this afternoon. After you Google Annas and Sapphira, that, that's a, a good cry in its way. But uh, Google uh, military reunion videos. Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? You watch one or two, you're like, ha, 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 I'm not crying. I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying. I'm serious. It's incredible. They do these surprise videos when the guy comes back from the, the soldier comes back from on tour or whatever, and the little kid doesn't know it's there. Dad, ah, they, that kid is not thinking what is proper decorum for this moment. The kid, it's not that the kid or the wife or who you know the, the husband. It's not that they don't care about the opinions of others. It's that there's something so glorious going on here that the opinion of others just sort of fades into the background. That's what I want for your life. That's what I mean when I say it's time to dance. It's time to have a little more abandon in the way you live. Not because you don't care about the opinions of others so much as you're so wrapped up. in David danced before the Lord. We've got to wrap this up, but you've got to see this. If you've been saved, if you see the gospel at work in your life, you've got to respond with this. Or even even on, on the flip side, if you say, Tom, I don't see the gospel at work in my life. I'm saved, but I'm struggling so much. Then thank him for his grace this morning. That he's not done with you. Thank him. If you feel like I'm such a sinner, at least you are starting to understand the holiness of God. There's something to thank him there too. Well, David, verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouting and the sound of the horn, exuberant, loud celebration. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the, uh, you remember Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David. She didn't even call him her husband. King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Ah, Michal. Why was she blind to the celebration happening? She was truly showing herself to be a daughter of Saul. Do you remember the last time we saw this woman at the window looking at David? Go way back to 1 Samuel. The last time the Bible says she's there at the window watching David was when she helped her beloved husband escape from Saul's wrath. Remember, she opened the window and let him down, and Lots happened since then. David, she was married to somebody else, came back to David, but by then David had other wives, and you can't help but think he brought her back not out of love, but out of political alliance with the family of Saul. She's now seen her father, her brothers killed on the field of battle. 
Her other brother's been murdered. Lots happened since that moment. And she despised him in her heart. It's probably a sermon for another day, but anger and the inability to forgive often have a habit of leading to that despising in the heart and you end up hurting yourself more than the person who you think offended you. David's not hurt by that at all. Anyway, I think there is one word of application. She looks at David with all this loud music and expressive worship and she despises him in her heart. There is a word of application. I'll just say this. I won't won't belabor the point. If you ever find yourself at a worship service where folks are being very expressive in their worship, hands raised, shouting amen, maybe even just a little leaping and dancing, Hmm? it's okay in that moment. If you do not come from that tradition, I think it's okay to say, This is not what I'm used to. I think that's fair. And I also think it's fair to say, I don't know these songs, but don't ever despise your brother or your sister in your heart. Because if somebody's been set free, what do you want them to do? What are they supposed to do? And I know sometimes you... you, you may say, well, I, you know, I, I don't worship that way or I don't, but you should feel free. I'm not asking you to be anything you're not, but I am saying you should feel the freedom that David felt. Well, verse 17 moves back to the street. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. See, it's a, it's a worship service. You got this kingly priest, David, who blesses the people. He gives the benediction and then a benediction and a snack. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So Pastor Scott, when you give the benediction, I would also like you afterward to pass out a fruit cake to every member here. And you go home with your cake of raisins. And you enjoy, right? It's a blessing. David returned, what a day. Can you imagine? What a day. He's exhausted. What with all the dancing? He can't wait to kick off his shoes. <laughs> I guess he already has. Uh, he can't wait to go home. Now he's going to bless his own household. Just hang up his linen ephod. And before he can even get in the door, there waits Michal with her cutting sarcasm. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, now if you're like, passive aggressive is such a modern thing. No, 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 no. You hear the sarcasm. How the king of Israel honored himself today. Well, well, well. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of, and here she, this is such a dig. Uncovering, it would have been a dig if she'd said, in front of all these common folk, in front of all the servants, she goes as low as she can go. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. What's lower than your servant? The people who serve the servants. And in a patriarchal society, what would be lower than that? The female servants who serve the servants of the people who are your servants. Oh, burn. Right? As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now you see, that's real despisal. The intent there is to wound. 
You're no better than a, than a bum who's publicly exposing himself on the street, casting off your kingly garments. I know something about being a king. I know I'm the, da- I'm the daughter of Saul, and kings don't do this. Kings are worried about decorum and their pride, and here you are just dancing before the Lord. And some of you wrestle with that same thing. I'm trying to draw your attention to this point. Some of you, you face your week this week so worried about what will people think. And social media did not create this problem. It raised the availability of the opinions of others to a place where we now all notice it. See? And that's what you have here. How you've embarrassed yourself. I No dignity. I suppose... Michal could have preferred the religion. I, you know whose religion I prefer? I prefer the religion of Uzzah. Stately, proper, careful, and dead. <laughs> and so what does David say in the next verse? David says, I'm sorry. You're right. No. David thinks, I took on Goliath. I can handle this woman. <laughs> I'm not afraid of my wife. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord. And here, I think he's giving it back just as well. Who chose me above your father and above all his house. I don't know if that was necessary. I don't don't think this is not given for us to emulate. I think, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate, here it is, before the Lord. You don't understand, Michal. I've seen the holiness of God. I saw with my own eyes what he did to Uzzah. But I saw the blessing of God. And that's when it hit me. Because of the atonement, because of sacrifice. Blood sacrifice means the holiness of God and the grace of God can meet. I've been touched by the gospel. And so I'm going to celebrate before the Lord. And in fact, verse 22, I'm going to make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I'll be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. You can almost hear him. He who wrote the psalm, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. And dwell. One day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. I got no problem being upstaged by God. And the final verse, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The reader's left to ponder. Does that mean she was struck barren or does that mean that uh, 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 David would have no relations with her. We, we don't know. But verse 21 is it. And that's my prayer for you this week. It was before the Lord. I want you to say before the Lord. Brand, Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response, but that, 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 that's the phrase that to me shapes this whole thing. Uh, look, I, let's talk about a worship service. It, it could be, like if you were to say to me, but pastor, sometimes I see these people who are real expressive in their worship, and I don't know, that just seems to be showy. Now wait a minute. If they're doing it to be showy, in other words, if they're doing it to show off for other people, then of course that's wrong. But if they're doing it before the Lord, how, how can we not feel freedom in that? Uh, there's, a, there's a story told about a, this pastor who was invited to give the invocation prayer at a political gathering, and the president was in attendance. It was Lyndon B. Johnson. LBJ was on the platform, and the president was, uh, was there for this event. And the pastor walks up to the podium to give the invocation at this big political event. And he begins praying, and the microphone is not working. And so the president, LBJ, stands up, interrupts the pastor, and says, hey, the mic's not on. We can't hear you. To which the pastor turns and says, well, Mr. President, I wasn't talking to you. 
there's a sense in which our worship, right? It's before the Lord. And so if for some reason you feel hindered or if you've ever despised anybody in their heart, it seems like they would want to turn and say, I'm not talking to you, right? That's fair. But the main application is not the context of a worship service. I doubt anybody in this room would judge you for being very expressive in your worship. I just, I don't, I don't think it's a very judgy room. I, fine, they'd celebrate, that's great. But the real application is tomorrow when you go to work and you're driven by what will people think. On your way to work, say it over and over again. I live before the Lord. It's before the Lord. So when you share the gospel and you live your life, and somebody says, well, I, we can't hear you. You did that wrong. Whoa, 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 wasn't talking to you. I'm not living for you. Eh, social media comments, blah, blah, blah. delete. I live before the Lord, before the Lord. That keeps you from pride on the one hand and from an over-concern about the opinions of others. That's the key. I live before the Lord. It was before the Lord. Go and live before the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, God, for the eternal and abiding word of God. No human would have ever invented this story. It's too offensive. But God, we see in it that your holiness is greater than we could imagine. We see that your grace runs deeper. And I pray for a church this week of a, of a self-forgetfulness, a, a dancing, leaping kind of joy before the Lord. That they would feel freedom, of course, in a worship service, but not, not, not just that, but in their lives this week, at school, at work, to not be so driven by the opinion of others, but to live before the Lord. I want that for them. I pray that for them. I pray for myself, my own family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.